0: Alright, thank you to uh, our childcare care workers, uh, so many of you who teach Sunday school and help out in children's church and, and do a hundred other things uh, together with the kids. Thank you so much for, for all of what you do. Let's take our Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to continue our study of the Sermon on the Mount. When you came in, hopefully you received one of the bulletins, and if you turn it over to the back, you'll see there are some very basic notes. Not a whole lot of room, I know, there to, to take notes, but if you would like to take notes, there's some room to, to jot a few things down on the back of your bulletin. The one thing that I would ask you to look at on the back of your bulletin and, and ask you to participate in as of act of worship is you'll notice that there's a reading plan, On the bottom of that back side of the bulletin that takes us up to Easter. And it's a reading plan that is designed to help us read the Sermon on the Mount at the same time and in the same process. And and the goal is that we'll be able to come together every week knowing this is what God's Word says. Now, what does it look like to live that out? This week, if you've been participating in that reading plan, and, and maybe you haven't read the Bible in a long time, you know so many of us are guilty, me included. We own multiple Bibles, and yet we open it so, so rarely, and we have to be careful about that because that is our foundation. That's our, our bread, our source of life, and so we, we go to Scripture together as a church. This morning, we were supposed to cover Matthew five seventeen through 47, through the end of the chapter that's not going to happen. Uh, I started to look at it and realized that was just unreasonable from the start, but I want us to stay on track. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to stay on track up through Easter, and then after Easter, we're going to come back around and we're going to do Sermon on the Mount 2.0. And we're going to go back and we're going to pick up Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 47. Because, you know, those verses include all of the easy topics like murder and adultery and divorce and all of these things that we need to give our attention to in a big way uh, as a church and as people living in the 21st century. So I don't want to bypass that too quickly. So we're going to stay on track, cover the Sermon on the Mount up through Easter, and then after Easter, we'll, we'll come back around and study Matthew 5 in a little bit more detail. So, that's the game plan, just to let you know as you talk to your friends and family, as you think about studying God's Word, that's, that's kind of where we're going together. This morning, let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. And if you would, let's stand both in honor of reading God's Word, and number two, it helps you have another chance to get the blood flowing. I know you've been, you've been sitting for just a little bit. So uh, primarily, though, we stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 5, just a few verses. We're going to start down in verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the the, the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. I don't know what your personal view is on calendars. Some people obsess over calendars. You love calendars. You have the kind with the the puppy dogs and the pretty uh, you know scenery on them, and you and you love calendars. Some people have no clue what happened yesterday, no clue what's going to happen tomorrow, and you just frankly don't care. You, the calendar is not your cup of tea. You don't really like it. I have to admit, I like calendars. My whole life I've been and it probably says way too much about my personality, but I've always enjoyed calendars. I've enjoyed making dates, keeping track of things. Calendars are very helpful when you have little kids and big events are coming up. Like, say, grandparents are coming to visit or you're going to go on vacation. Amanda finally got tired of saying, it's this many days until the grandparents come, and so she figured out, I can just give the kids a calendar, and if they come and ask when the grandparents are coming, you just say, go to your room, and look at the calendar, and see, you know, how you're marking off the days so you'll know how long. Your moms know how it works, you know, mom, 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 mom. They just chase her around the house asking the same question, and calendars don't solve that problem, but, but it does help, because it says, this is when things are going to happen. Something interesting is that much of the church, and if you grew up in a Catholic church or a Lutheran church or maybe an Episcopal church, something like that, churches follow a particular calendar through the year. We have Advent and then the birth of Christ at Christmas, and then you have the celebration of of Epiphany on January the 6th. And then right now, this past week, with Mardi Gras on Tuesday— You had Ash Wednesday that began a season called Lent that leads up to Easter, and then after Easter you move into Passover, and then after Passover you move into ordinary time. Some of those phrases may be common to you if you went to Mass along the way growing up, or if you've been involved in different churches— As a Baptist church and and growing up in some evangelical church, it's to our own detriment that we haven't paid more attention to the church calendar. And, And I want to do a better job personally, and I want us to do a better job as a church saying, how has God set up the year? How has he worked throughout different periods of time? And more importantly, how does that help us understand God? We're not doing these things for rituals, but how does it help us understand the way that God works? Because right now, we're in the season of Lent. Some of you may be fasting from particular things. If you grew up in a Catholic church, the whole idea of not eating meat on, on Fridays, and you see all of those awful fish sandwich commercials on McDonald's that they have, and you just, oh, if you like the fish sandwich at McDonald's, more power to you. But, uh, you know, during Lent, you see all these fish commercials show up on uh, On on TV, so you may be fasting right now, moving up to Easter. The point is, we live at a time right now where people are curious about Jesus. TV shows start to run their yearly Jesus shows, the Discovery Channel. Uh, CNN, Fox News, History Channel, you'll start to see all of these Jesus shows pop up. Uh, There's the AD30 show that's coming out soon. Fox is working on another show about Jesus. We live in a time where church attendance is rapidly declining, but where people remain really curious about Jesus. And, And I think that says something to us. When you go out and you talk about your church, there's a good chance that people's eyes might glaze over. When you talk about Jesus, though, people are curious. They, they want to know, who is this Jesus guy? Why does he matter? What has he done? Why, what's so important about this? And, and we have a chance to answer that. And we've been looking at the book of Matthew, one of the gospels in the scriptures, one of those books that tells us about the life and ministry of Jesus to say, Who is Jesus? What did he do? Why did it matter? And you get to Matthew chapter 5 and you get into a section called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a section on Jesus' teaching and where he tells us, this is what I'm all about. This is what it means to follow me. This is what it means to call yourself a Christian. And the Sermon on the Mount is set up where the beginning verses have all these phrases that start out, blessed are. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Different blessing statements. And they're statements about these are the people who are a part of God's kingdom. And then after that section, you get to a section we talked about last week where Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. This is his vision for what his people are going to be all about. And then we get today to Matthew chapter 5 verses 17 through 20. And I realize, and I'm guilty of this as well, I realize pastors are guilty of over-exaggerating things. But I cannot tell you how important this section of Scripture is for understanding the Bible. If you want to know who Jesus is, if you want to know what Jesus is all about, this is a hinge passage. This is a key foundational passage for understanding that. So now that I've set the bar really high, I'll try not to let you down in the next 20 minutes. But uh, here's what it says. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, do not think— that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, when somebody says, do not think that I did this, what they're saying is, you've heard other people saying this type of thing about you. Why would the people think If Jesus says, do not think, why would the people around him think that he came to abolish the law or the prophets? Well, the verses just before this in Matthew give us a hint. Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 to 25, they're going to be up on the screen so you can see them, but this happens just before the Sermon on the Mount. It says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel The good news of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him, and this is very key, the news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and Jerusalem, and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. In other words, Jesus was starting to become famous. Reports about his healing, reports about the powerful things that he could do, reports about the things that he said were starting to spread. And you know what happens when reports spread? Things get mixed a little bit. That old telephone game that you would play in elementary school when you would say something to the person beside you, and then that person would say something to the person beside them, and then it would spread around the room. And when you got to the end, what happened? It was nothing like the way that it started. We know how gossip works. You go to work, you go to school, you live in families with living, breathing people, so gossip happens. We, we know what this looks like for reports to spread and for things to get twisted in the process. The truth is that Jesus was healing on the Sabbath. The truth is that Jesus ate with people who were considered to be sinners. The truth is that Jesus taught some things that didn't match up with what the other religious leaders said. And so people were coming along and they were saying, Jesus is just going to do away with the law or the prophets. In other words, Jesus was going to do away with the Old Testament and he was going to move in a new direction. But look back there really quickly at Matthew 5.17. Let's make sure we understand some words really quickly. He says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. The law there is what is often known as the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. God telling His people, "This is what it looks like to live as My people." Have you ever been on one of those Bible reading plans, Or, or maybe you didn't grow up in church and you just got curious about the Bible, and so you told yourself, "I'll start at the beginning," which sounds like a good idea. And you read Genesis, and it's this incredible story. And you read Exodus, and it's an incredible story. And then you get to a book called Leviticus, and you get all of these really strange laws. And then it gets worse because you get to a book called Numbers, and you get huge lists of names. And you think, well, maybe I will start at the end of the book and work back to the beginning because it's difficult. And, and, and so when we talk about the law, we're talking about those first five books of the, of the Old Testament where God tells his people, this is what it looks like to live as my people. The prophets are the books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Jonah, Amos, those books where people come along and say, you're not living according to God's law, but he wants you to. And so the prophets would call people back to God's law. But there's this word abolish there. Jesus says, I did not come to abolish. Abolish is a word that means cancel or destroy or do away with, something like that. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to do away with the Old Testament. I didn't come away to do didn't come to do away with the law of the prophets. This is every generation's nightmare. The idea that the young bucks would come up behind you and would do away with everything that you've laid in place. This is why older generations just have this idea built in that we have to hold on because if we don't hold on to the things we think are important, the young people are going to come up and they're going to do away with it. I hope that's not the case for our church. And I don't think that it is, but it happens in church all the time where the older people say we have to hold on to things because if not, the younger people are going to come up and they're going to do away with it. Jesus, though, says, I didn't come to do that. I did not come to abolish or do away with the law of the prophets. What did he come to do, though? He said, I didn't come to do away with it, but I came to fulfill it. What he's saying. And, and this word, fulfill, if you want to highlight in your Bible, if you want to highlight in the phone, if you want to circle it four times in your Bible, it would be impossible to overemphasize how important this word is to understanding the New Testament in the Bible. Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the Old Testament. I came to fulfill it. In other words, I came to fill it up, to give it its full significance. Everything that the law was about. Everything that the prophets were about, everything that the Old Testament pointed toward, it centered on and it was fulfilled by Jesus. And you say, well, you're really making a big deal about Jesus here. And I would say, yes, that is the point of Scripture. That is the point of the New Testament. Jesus would say that all of Scripture speaks about himself, which says that he has not come to do away with He has come to make clear that this is what Scripture meant. This is what all of Scripture was pointing to. So what did Jesus come to abolish? Jesus came to abolish wrong understanding of the law and the prophets. He came to abolish wrong use of the law and the prophets. Some people were coming along and saying you have to obey the law in order to be saved. And Jesus says, no, that's the wrong understanding. That's the wrong use of the Old Testament. You don't have to obey that in order to be saved. All of that points to me as the Savior. All of that points to me as the one who will fill up God's plan. And so when we as Christians read the Bible, we read it all as a story pointing to Jesus as the one who would be the king, as the one who would be the savior, as the one whom all history revolves around, revolves around Jesus. And so Jesus says that I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Is there a picture, guys, up there on maybe in the next slide? I want to show you an illustration for what this might look like. I don't know how well this is going to come out here, but I worked hard. No picture? Okay. My mistake. This week during uh, our family worship time, I was reading to our kids about this passage. And so Bennett, our six-year-old, started drawing a picture— Parents, this is, this is really important, and this, this applies to adults as well. When you're reading Scripture with your kids at home, let them draw pictures. Some people just think better in pictures. I know adults that when they go to church, they don't take notes by writing out words. They take notes for what the preacher says by drawing pictures. Now, I hope you don't draw like a demon face and write Arrow and Owen or something like that. But, uh, you know, you, you learn— How many of you in school, your note page was full of doodling along the side? Or you drew pictures all over your notes at school? We learn by drawing pictures. And, And so Bennett, as he was listening to these words, he drew a picture of Jesus throwing another person into the trash can. uh, Because he said, that's what it would look like to abolish the prophets, to throw them into the trash can. And then he drew an X over the trash can, and he drew another bucket, and he said, he drew it and he filled it up with water, and he said, this is Jesus fulfilling the law or the prophets. Now, before you think we sit in a circle with halos on our head during family worship time, this is after he hit his sister. This is after another child was in timeout because they ran around, you know. So don't, don't think that we sit at home with halos over our head. But, but the point is that when you read the Bible, it helps to think in terms of pictures. And it helps to think about the fact that Jesus didn't come to throw the Old Testament in the trash can. He came to fill it up. To say, this is what it's been all about, and it points to me. But anytime we read scripture, there's always a so what question. If you go to church, and you hear the Bible, and you hear a sermon, and you say, so what? That is a good question to ask. Do not feel guilty. I I would want you to feel guilty if you went home and didn't ask, so what? So what? What is the big deal about Jesus filling this up? Well, it all points to our obedience. Look at those next verses there. It says in verse 19, whoever then, so based on what you just heard, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. There's something really important here. Because many of us grew up in churches, and hear me out, okay, hear me out on this. Many of us grew up in churches where our idea of being a Christian was that you prayed a prayer, you got saved, and that meant that you would go to heaven when you die. And, and that was it. That was the story of Christianity. Christianity. And it's no reason that so many people find Christianity boring and irrelevant and and not impactful to their lives because if the only point is to pray a prayer that someone else says, then you become saved and then you go to heaven when you die. What does that really mean about living as a believer? What does that really mean about living as part of God's kingdom? And Jesus comes along here and he says, yes, all of scripture points to me as the Savior. But on the basis of that, You're not going to set aside these commandments and teach others to do the same. You're going to practice them and teach them. Part of following Jesus is that we obey him, that we obey his commandments. And I know that that's difficult for some of us to stomach because we've, we've bought into a form of Christianity that says, it's all about what I believe, it's all about what I think, it's all about what I feel, but whatever I do through the week doesn't really matter. And Jesus says that is not at all what it means to follow me. That's not at all what it means to be a part of my kingdom. Jesus is calling us to obedience. But here's the idea. It's not obedience in order to earn favor with God. It's not obedience in order to be saved. It's I've been saved by the grace of God, therefore I'm going to obey. The, the, the analogy here is you don't tell your kids Obey so that you can become my child. You tell them, you are my child, therefore you're going to obey. Do you see the difference there? We're not saying you have to do these things in order to become a child of God. We're saying that if you have become a child of God, if you experience God's work in your life, the result of that is going to be obedience. Now this doesn't mean, hear me clearly here, this does not mean that there will not be times that we struggle with sin. The reality is that all of us will struggle with sin. But here's a distinction that's become very helpful for me. If you want to jot it down or just make a middle note, this has become very helpful for me. There's a difference between struggling with sin and justifying sin. And there's also a difference between justifying sin and setting up camp in that sin. You see, when you are struggling with sin, you're saying, the thing that I'm struggling with in life right now, I know it's not obedient to God's word, but I want to get past it. I want, by God's grace, to live for him. I want to follow Jesus. That's different than saying, you know what, I don't think it's a big deal that what I'm doing, I'm just going to justify that this is okay because they don't know my circumstances and so what I'm doing really isn't so bad. And that's also different than saying, Forget God. Forget what the Bible says. Forget what anybody else says. They can't tell me what to do. I'm going to do whatever I want to do, and I'm going to live in that. Struggling in sin and setting up camp in sin are miles apart. And so when we say that being a part of God's kingdom means being obedient to the commandments that Jesus has given us, we're not saying that you're not going to struggle. You, you're going to struggle. I'm going to struggle. I struggle this morning, I'll struggle this afternoon, and it'll continue tomorrow. But it means that we are pursuing to live a life devoted to Christ. And the really neat thing about this, and one of the things that I love about First Baptist is this truth of our obedience to Christ, it doesn't matter if this is the first day you follow Jesus or if you follow Jesus for 70 years. And one of the things that we have at First Baptist is generational diversity. We may lack racial diversity, and I pray that by God's grace, we'll move to a time that we see that. But one of the beautiful things we have here is we have socioeconomic diversity. We got poor people up to rich people. And we've got generational diversity. We have very young people up to very not young people. And we need, well played, huh? Well played. Um, We need everybody. Because the person who has just followed Jesus needs to be called to obedience. And the person who's followed Jesus for 70 years needs to continue in obedience. And we do that together. You don't take a special pill and all of a sudden you know how to obey Jesus. You do it as you live in relationship with other people. You do it as you work through these things and say, I want to follow after him. And the result of this is found in verse 20. Look in verse 20 and we'll wrap up with this verse. So Jesus' authority leads to our obedience, which then leads to the hope that we have for the kingdom. Verse 20, I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is a hard teaching. What? Because the scribes and the Pharisees, they got the law right. They obeyed the law. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that— Here's what I think he means, and I've worked through this this week, and I would say I'm at about 90%, so I could be persuaded differently, but I think what Jesus means here is that your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees in quality, not quantity. Now, like I said, I, I think that that's what Jesus is saying. He is saying here, there's a way in which the scribes and Pharisees are obedient to the law that doesn't actually get to the heart of what the law is all about. And so Jesus is calling them that their righteousness would be centered on him, not just obeying these laws in order to try to earn favor with God. Because all throughout scripture, kingdom living is tied in with righteous living. In Matthew chapter 6 verse 33, Jesus says to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness— and all these things will be added unto you. If you want to know what it looks like to pursue kingdom living, it's going to be living that's based on who Christ is and its focus toward him. What does this look like? In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus has an interaction with a rich ruler. Sometimes he's called the rich young ruler. And this rich young ruler says, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? What must I do to earn salvation? And Jesus says, you know, obey the commandments. And he says, which ones? And Jesus says, we well, you know, like, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor. And the guy looks back at him and he says, I, I've done all those. What else? You know what Jesus says? He says, go sell all your possessions And give it to the poor. And what does the rich young ruler do? He turns and he walks away, Scripture says, because he was the owner of much property. He had obeyed all of these commandments that are listed in the Old Testament. But what was exposed is that his heart was not devoted to the Lord. If we're not careful, there is a way to come to church— And to play by a certain number of church rules and say, look, I've done this and this and this and this. And yet when we really look at our heart, we find that our heart is not devoted to the Lord. Our heart is not given over to obeying Him and the life that He has called us to live. What happens in Matthew chapter 5 verses 17 through 20, Jesus says, if you're going to come after me, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to call yourself a Christian— You will do it based on trusting my authority, obeying my commands, and focusing your life toward living as part of God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Here in just a second, I'm going to pray for us. And after I pray, we're going to stand together. And even if you normally don't sing during the psalms, maybe because you don't know the words, or maybe because singing just isn't really your thing— Let me ask you to sing during this psalm, and the reason I do is because the psalm is called Trust and Obey. Trust and Obey is exactly what this passage is about, that we would trust the authority of Jesus and that we would obey him. We don't trust and maybe obey, and we don't obey without trusting. Trust and obey are two sides of the same coin, and that coin is the kingdom of heaven. Those who trust Jesus and those who follow after him as Lord and Savior. During that time that the people are seeing if life is tough right now, if you just need someone to pray for you, I would love to do that. If you're looking for a church where people are basing their lives around the word of God, they're not perfect, they're struggling, but they're wanting to follow the Lord, I would love to talk with you about that as well. Just respond however the Lord is leading you right now. Let me pray for us and we're going to sing that song together in response to God's word.